This morning we continue our series together called Goodbye God. And we enter into the second session, the second objection that we are going to tackle and wrestle with this morning concerning the objections that so many have leveled against Christianity. And that is, what's up with the church? Why go to church? As you saw from our introductory video, people have very strong opinions about church. There's no doubt about that. In fact, in almost every conversation that I personally engage in, I have no difficulty working with the person of Jesus Christ. The difficulty comes when I bring up the church. That's when the brakes go on. That's when they begin to try to check out of the conversation. That's begin where they try to change the conversation to take a different direction. Why are people so antagonistic towards the church? That's a question that we must wrestle with. Because that antagonism, we would like to readily dismiss as their lack of understanding of what the church is meant to be, their hostility towards Christianity and Christ himself, or blatantly because they are just simply in the darkness and the church is in the light and they just hate that which is light. It would be easy to simplify it in that way. And it certainly may make us feel better if we could simply write it off for those purposes. But in my conversation with people, those aren't the realities. What the world sees in the church is what the church is not seeing in the church. Let me say that again. What the world is seeing in the church is what the church is not seeing of itself. We need to take a hard look at the church in America and decide if we are accurately depicting what God originally intended in and through it. We have to be honest with ourselves. And wherever we need to correct or changes need to be made, we need to do so humbly. This conversation is not so much for our skeptical friends as our first three were. This conversation is for us. Because we are the church. And their objections, I believe, have great merit in many regards. And we must be honest with ourselves. We must repent where repentance is necessary that we may example for the world what the church was always meant to be. Do you realize that in Acts chapter 2, after Peter proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem for the very first time after the coming of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Talk about an increased church membership overnight. The church began... And we see it there in Acts chapter 2 in its infancy. And we see the very practical manners in which the apostles dealt with the church and led the church. But there's a verse there that so many dismiss. So many look past. And they don't seem to want to acknowledge in our current climate. And that is, is that God gave the church favor with all the people there in Jerusalem. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Now we know that as we read the book of Acts, 
The gospel itself became offensive. Christ became offensive. And persecution mounted against the church. It was for the message of the gospel that the persecution was leveled. It was for the person of Jesus Christ that the persecution was leveled. It isn't for the same reasons today. The objections, the criticism that the world has towards the church is for completely different reasons altogether. Many believe and are writing articles one right after another that America is in a Christian decline. That is why we are engaging in this series together entitled Goodbye God. As we discovered, one out of every four people in America now identify themselves as either being an atheist or an agnostic. Two-thirds of those people at one time had significant ties with Christianity and had identified themselves as such. No longer is the case. They have moved away from that identity. Their objections had to do with the Bible, which we addressed in our last three sessions together, where we looked at the evidence, we looked at the history, and we looked at the supernatural nature of the Bible. Their second objection came to the church. The integrity that the church is meant to have, it appears to no longer have. And if you listen carefully to the objections raised in the video that we introduced this session with, you would have to be honest and to say, they're right. The church is obviously an imperfect place because it is created and it, it is made up of imperfect people. However, though, what the world is seeing amongst those who claim Christianity today is a lack of regard for the fear of the Lord and personal holiness. And we walk in such a way of carnality that the world looks at us and says, what is different about you than about myself? The world doesn't understand that we are fallen and simply forgiven. And God is working in us and we are all a work in progress. But I do believe that the world could embrace that if we were simply humble enough to say that. That if we try to walk as God would have us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and on those occasions when we failed, if we fail with integrity and work through that failure humbly, I think the world can understand that. They can understand imperfection. It's the blatant hypocrisy that they are opposed to. It's there, it is the saying of one thing and doing just the opposite that the world is opposed to. It is being so dogmatic on certain elements of life where we will argue verbally with anyone who opposes us and yet the basic tenets of the Christian faith we are unwilling to live by. That's what the world objects to. For example, in our next session, as we discover what the church is, because the problem lies with us, not the world. I can't expect the world to completely understand the church, can you? No. They can't understand Christ in their condition, to the degree that we understand Christ. And we can understand the church because we understand Christ, if that makes sense to you. The problem is with us. 
Here in America, we've lost the identity of the church, the identity of Christianity. That is why we spent so many weeks going through the follow me statements of Jesus Christ to remember what the invitation originally looked like. That's why we're laboring through the book of Acts to remind us what Christianity looks like, that we may display it in our own personal lives ourselves, that the world may see Christ in us. That's what's meant to occur. But the world, I believe, has legitimate objections concerning the character and the identity of the church. It is because here in the United States of America, we have so diluted, we have so distorted the church here in America that many people, I believe, who are sincere Christians don't even understand why they personally go to church any longer. And many believe that the church sees them as an individual as simply a means to the end, a means of financial gain, a means of voluntary service, a means of fulfilling the church's personal agenda. But they've lost the entire understanding and Christ's identity fingerprinted upon it, and therefore they lost the big meaning. One of the scariest revelations given in the book of Revelation is found in the second chapter when a church that had all things going for it in the right direction, the Lord indicted by saying, you've left your first love. Today, I wonder how many churches are operating outside of that love and don't even know it. How many churches are operating outside the power of the Holy Spirit and don't even know it? How many churches don't even know why or what they are doing when they assemble, they know that they just need to assemble? We don't know what the church is anymore. And the world has picked up on that lack of identity. There are five objections that the world levels against the church that we need to take seriously. If we are going to work with our skeptical friends, and that's how I would identify these 25% of Americans skeptical, agnostics more than atheists, Individuals who are defined as a person inclined to question or to doubt all accepted opinions. A skeptic. Our skeptical friends need to know that if they have an objection that is legitimate, that we are going to address that objection. Now, I don't know about you, but as the pastor of this church, heading in now to our 20th year, and I'd like to see 20 more, The secret of success is this. Do it God's way in every way. That's the secret of the success. Now what do I mean by success? I'm not talking about numeric numbers. Numeric numbers does not equal success. What I am looking for when I use the word success, I'm not talking about a wealthy church that has taken the sovereignty of the leading of the church out of the hand of God and placed it upon their savings account. I'm talking about a successful church, one who glorifies the Lord in all that they do, one who edifies the saints and builds them up in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and one who is seeking to continue and to fulfill the work that Christ started 
and left us to do, seeking and saving those who are lost. To me, that's a healthy church, and therefore a successful church. We are more concerned about health, quality, than we are about quantity. And we believe that the Lord started this work and the Lord will continue this work. It is our responsibility to remain where he wants us to remain. As he moves, we move. As he leads, we follow in every aspect. As we come to these objections, I ask you to listen to them with me. And I pray that you would have an open heart and an open mind to the concerns that the people have. Most of these skeptics have come to these conclusions based upon their own personal experience with the church and their perception of the church. They see the church. Most skeptics think of Christian churches as follows. Groups of people, number one, who share a common physical space and have some common religious views but are not personally connected to each other in any meaningful or life-changing way. Think about that. Basically, we're just all occupying the same space and we think similarly together. But there's nothing that really binds us together. I don't know about you, but that's not the church that Christ instituted. Number two, organizations that add little if any value to their communities, their greatest value stems from the limited times they serve the needy in the community. There is no doubt that the church has become inward focus. They've lost their understanding of looking outside the four walls of the church. Many of the budgets that are created for local churches are simply inward focused. They're looking to expand what they already have rather than looking to do more outside of the walls of the church. Number three, organizations that stand for the wrong things. Wars, preventing gay marriage and women's freedom to control her body. Sexual and physical violence perpetrated on people by religious authority figures. Mixing religious beliefs with political policy and action. This is where the world and the church will collide, and that is on moral issues. And we must not apologize for that, and we certainly must not compromise on that. But we must have inner understanding when we talk about these things, and we must do so with tact and courtesy and kindness, sticking to our positions that the Bible has asked us to stick to without compromise, but allowing individuals to approach us on these subjects and to be able to reason with them biblically. Number four. The world sees that the church led, is led by people who have not earned their positions of influence by proving their love of humankind. And they are thus not deserving of that trust. How many churches have adopted a business model that then states that they must have a high-powered personality, quote-unquote, celebrity at the helm behind the pulpit. And therefore, that person is elevated not because of their pastoral, biblical qualities, 
but because they are an A-type personality who are great orators, who can communicate extremely well, articulate, good to look at, etc., and yet they have never qualified biblically for the position in which they hold. And the fifth objection is one that was added to it. The people of the world simply do not believe that the people of the church believe what they say they believe. They don't believe it. You say you believe one thing, but your life seems to contradict that in almost every way. Now, we can simply dismiss these. And we can write these people off. And in an arrogance and in a pride state, we are the church, we are Christians. Or we can look at these things objectively, humbly, and begin to ask the questions, is there legitimacy to some of these concerns? And in my 20 years of pastoring a church and being involved in church life, I will tell you that the church in America has lost its way. Many don't even realize it. Many don't even seem to understand that what Christ started, they no longer reflect any longer. They just don't seem to get it. When we approach the Bible and study the character of the church, it is called the study of ecclesiology, the church. What is the church? Before we can go any farther together in these conversations, and we're going to have some conversations, we're going to talk very openly and honestly about some of the hypocrisy that is going on in the church today. Why does it appear that the church has become all about money? Because it has. That's why. Why does it appear that the gospel of Jesus Christ can't even be reiterated in the lives of many who have attended churches for 30, 40 years? Why is there a continual biblical illiteracy increase year after year after year, and yet we have a plethora of churches out there? What is happening? But before we can get to all of that, we have to understand what the Bible says about the church. We have to understand what Christ's intention was for the church before we can evaluate any of those other symptoms of a greater problem. And as we begin this together, the very first time that the word church is used, it is used by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in response to the declaration that Peter makes concerning him being the Messiah. That is Jesus, not Peter. And as we look at this, we learn a lot about the church just from its initial introduction. For the New Testament tells us that the church was a mystery. It was something new that Christ was starting, though the whispers of it which were found in the prophecies of the Old Testament, it is now established in the New Testament. The only way we are going to be able to address these objections honestly and with humility is if we first personally evaluate our own personal administration of the church and our own personal involvement in the church. Why do so many Christians today believe that it is okay to blow off or skip church, not one or two Sundays a year, 
but for several months at a time. What does that communicate to their family? What does it say to the world about their devotion to Jesus Christ? Some may say, it doesn't say anything. I disagree. I think it speaks volumes. It tells the world that the church is irrelevant and it isn't important. And if Christians have this attitude, why should the world take the church seriously? But listen to what Jesus said. If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin our look at the church. The study of the church is a vast study. And we are going to try to simplify it for you this morning. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, we join the disciples and Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, where they have just come back from going and being sent out two by two. Going into all the areas there in Israel, coming back, the Lord asks them a question found in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, John the Baptist. Others says Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, and it seems like this question had more of an emphasis of importance, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. The foundation, the cornerstone of the church is the person of Jesus Christ. That is so important for all of us to understand. It is a fundamental understanding of ecclesiology. It is not the denomination itself. The cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself. Nobody must insert themselves in that place, and no denomination must insert themselves within that place or position. And Christ told us very clearly that it is going to be based upon the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Not upon Peter, but upon the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He says also here, very fundamentally, I will build my church. Understand that. He is the cornerstone. He is the master builder. He is the centerpiece to all that the church is. Later on, after his ascension, Paul calls him the head of the church. The word church in Greek is ecclesia. And in that word we find and discover that it simply represents an assembly of persons. 
Some find in the etymology of the word in the summed up parts that it refers to the called out ones. It was a word that was used in the common usage of the Greek language at that time for simply a group of people gathering under the summons of one who is in authority. And I think that aptly represents the church. Those who have been called out, called out of the world and assembled together by Christ. Those who gather together under the authority of one who has summons them, and that is the person of Christ. Christ is the head of the church in every respect. It can refer to a local congregation or the universal congregation. Now this might shock you, this next statement. How many churches are there? Who can answer that question? One. Thank you very much for saying that. There is one church in Christ. Though we have different buildings, and of course the word church today for most people in America references a physical location, a building Just like you were to say, I'm going to the mall, I'm going to the Cubs game, I'm going to the Hawks game, whatever it may be, you're going to a place where people gather for a certain purpose. When you use the word church amongst people today, their immediate thought is not the people, but the building itself. This building is not the church. You, each and every one of you, make up the church. Now this focus has to be embraced if we're going to understand everything else. So the church is not about buildings. It's not about location. It is about you and I, individually, summons together in Christ, brought into a body, a building, a family, a bride, a people. That's what the church is. It is the people. So if we simply sum up church as a building or a locale, we are going to localize something that's meant to be much more universal. Does that make sense? We are the church together, the people of the church. That's why the emphasis here has always been the people, not the location, not the building, but the people. In actuality, because we have a plethora of churches here in America, and I'm thankful for all the churches who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who love His Word, the body of Christ is much bigger than just our little congregation here. But that being said, to the world, they see it as division. You understand that, right? They understand it as God being divided in different pockets, representing them, representing Him differently in each one of those pockets. And depending on what church you go to, you get a different flavor of who God is. Is it meant to be that way? No, it isn't. This is something that's so important. If you've ever driven into a, a, a town that has been established for many years, especially if you go on the East Coast, you might find a church that says, the First Baptist Church of so-and-so. Drive a couple more blocks later, and then you find the Second Baptist Church of so-and-so. Many of those have resulted because the first church has divided. And it wasn't because of growth, it was because of dissent. And so they had to start another church down the block. Now there's division. 
Now, I'm personally grateful for all the different flavors that God allows his people to worship by. And people worship God differently all over the world. And I think it just shows the creativity and the nature of God in that diversity. But there's one church. There's one church. And that is headed by Christ himself. And though there may be different bodies and different flavors around, there's one church. But to the world, they don't understand that. There are five aspects of the church that I want to look at very quickly this morning. Number one, we are God's people. Number two, we are Christ's body. Number three, we are his building. Number four, we are his bride. And number five, we are his family. From the very beginning of the Bible, if you begin to open it, you will see that God desires for himself a people. From Adam and Eve, after they had fallen and sinned in the garden, the very first thing we do is seeing God assembling a people back to himself, right? Adam and Eve, where are you? Summonsing them back, even after their fall. Bringing them back into fellowship with him by the sacrifices in which he demonstrated before him. When even he came to judge the world, he summons Noah to create the ark and to carry him and his family through the flood. Sometime after the flood and Noah establishing and repopulating the earth, he then summons Abraham to start a nation through Isaac and Jacob. And of course, those people then found themselves congregated in the land of Egypt and then summoned out again, once again, through the mouth of Moses as God led the children of Israel out of Egypt. God desired a people for himself. Then the nation of Israel was established under the various kings in which they had. Different prophets came at different times to challenge and to correct and to even rebuke the nation for walking away from God, but God still had a chosen people amongst the people of the earth, the Israelites, his people. And then a period of silence came that lasted for 400 years, and that silence was broken by one crying in the wilderness, as prophesied. As John the Baptist broke the silence there in Israel and announced the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ came as the Old Testament had predicted and said he would. He arrived and came and established and introduced the new covenant between God and man. Celebrated at that Last Supper. Showing and describing that Israel would reject their Messiah. But anyone who did receive him, going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, would be brought into this new people group that is made of Jews and Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and language from all over the world. Those who come and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, place their faith and trust in him, were now going to be part of this mystery that he is going to create called the church. And that's where we are today. We are God's people here on this earth, the church. As Paul wrote in Galatians, he wrote this, in Galatians three twenty-seven and 29. For as many as you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, 
For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. So what he began, he is continuing. We need to understand that. Our culture is predicated upon an abandonment of history. You have to understand that. Very few Americans understand their own personal history, even in this particular nation. And we've only been a nation, you know, a little over 200 years. We don't have a history like Rome or Europe or China or India. We're not even familiar with our own 200 years of history, and therefore we are working and making decisions in the current time and era apart from that. We have to understand as a church that God started something way before Christ, and now we have been grafted, as Paul says, into that continued work. Christianity is is birthed out of Judaism. We have to understand that. Listen to what Peter said concerning the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so there is no division between Christ and the church in the sense of this. One of the objections that I hear so often is, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. Really. John would have serious problems with that. Paul would have serious problems with that. Peter would have serious problems with that. Because it's an extension. It's a continuation. He is the head. We are the body. And I like what Greg Laurie says. I've heard people say that I love the church, but I cannot stand Christians. I'm bitter at the church, but I love the Lord. You can't be bitter at the church. I know the church has its flaws. We are just sinners saved by grace. Don't expect perfection from anyone. You need to love the church. The church is God's people. If you really love the Lord, you will love His people. If you really love the Lord, you will love lost people. The Lord's heartaches for them as well. People from all over the world who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, who call Christ their Savior and Lord, are part of the church. From all over the world. Have you ever traveled anywhere and met someone and you, you, you're just starting to get to know them, maybe at a restaurant or a hotel, and something's just clicking. It's just working. And then, of course, you discover that they too are a believer. I can't tell you how many times I've flown and been seated next to a Christian. Now, I'm kind of disappointed because I like being seated next to an, uh, someone who's not a Christian because I have a captive audience. But we end up talking and sharing the Lord, and it's just absolutely spectacular. There's something there, and it's like we've known each other for years. And yet, we've just met. But not only is the church God's people, but we are the body of Christ. And that simply means this. We are here to continue what Christ has started. We are here to continue what Christ has started. He is the head, and that is one of the words that Paul uses to describe Jesus as he does in Colossians 1, 18-20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything that he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of the Godhead was well pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Not only is Christ the head, but then we become the body. This is another element that is imperative that we understand. That Christ is the head. And where the head tells the body to go, the body goes, right? I've never gotten into an argument with my fingers. I've never gotten into an argument with my feet when I've asked them to go that way. I haven't resisted. I've never had my feet say to me, I'm done. I'm standing right here. I'm going no further. We are merely an extension of the head of who is Christ. We are the body. As one wrote this in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Tozer commented on this aspect of us being a body when he said, A description of the church is the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is the head, and as the head of the church, he directs it. My hands move because my head tells them to. My head directs my body. The head of the local church is not the pastor, but Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the head of the universal church of which the local church is a part of. A local church is not all the body of Christ, but it is a miniature of the body of Christ in its totality. And this is important. Because in our culture today, what has dominated the thinking of many Christians is consumerism. We have become a consumer-driven nation, haven't we? We used to be a service-oriented nation at one time. Now we are consumer-driven. That mentality has come into the church, and that mentality has carried with it, what is the church going to do for me? What am I going to get out of the church? We've had people come visit our church and tell me that they were looking at a number of different churches, and one even said to me, we want to make sure that we get the most bang for our buck. Okay. The consumer mentality that has just engulfed the thinking of the believer here in Jesus Christ. But Jesus said this himself, I have not come to be served, but to serve. So if we're an extension of Christ and this was his mentality, how dare we take it to this level apart from him? We all play a role. We are all part of the body. But not only are we a body, but we're a building. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want Paul to speak to us through this chapter this morning. I think it's imperative that we look at this together. If I were to paint a backdrop of what I'm about to say, I would say this. In the culture at that time, God was worshipped in a locality. Does anybody know where that locality was? It was the epicenter of Jerusalem. It was the crown jewel, the temple, filled with the glory of God. 
And people pilgrimed from all over the known world to come to worship God at that place. In fact, Jesus got into a discussion over this issue with a woman next to a well. In John chapter 4, if you read, you'll discover that she was convinced that God must be worshipped in a certain place. The Samaritans had the mountain. The Jews had Jerusalem. But Jesus said a time was going to come where you no longer worship at the mountain or in Jerusalem, but through truth and the Spirit of God. That a new era was coming. And God has created in us that era where each and every one of us is now the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. And each and every one of us then becomes an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, each and every person that we meet who does not know the Lord, we become an instrument in the hands of God to show them Christ. Does that make sense? And then when we come together, Christ dwelling amongst the praises of His people, God dwelling there in that place. But no place is it articulated better than in the second chapter of Ephesians, where Paul makes the argument of us coming out of the world, called together, and then bringing us collectively together as one in Christ. Let's just read this together and let these words speak to us. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. And Paul tells us, And you were dead in in trespasses and sin, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... I love that introduction. Being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages we might show that immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And these famous verses that we so often separate from the rest of the chapter. For grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. People stop there when they really should continue. Therefore, where Paul sums up and concludes what he has just said, think of the theological richness of those first ten verses and understand what Christ has pulled us out of, what God has pulled us out of. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the, in the flesh by hands, talking about the separation of Jews and Gentiles, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13 starts with that beautiful word again. But now in Christ, you were once afar off, you now have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, that is the peace between man and God, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, that animosity between the Greeks and the Jews. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being that cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you have you are also being built together into a dwelling place by God the Spirit. For God by the Spirit. Notice what he's saying. How many churches understand this? That we have been brought from a position of complete desperation to a position of hope in Christ. Notice God's working there. Notice Christ working there. Notice the Spirit working there. And what people were meant to see in the temple now should be seen in the church. The glorification of God himself through his people. The prayers of the people of God being offered. The working of God in and amongst his people in dynamic ways. Notice and see that. That's what the church is meant to be. The continuation of what he has started. The promise he made to the woman by the well now fulfilled in all of us that God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And each one of us, Paul calls the temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore allows us to be that ambassador in which we spoke of. I like what one commentator wrote when he said this, The building image is grounded in the temple imagery of the Old Testament. As the place where God's presence and glory were most often seen, the church is now that place on earth where God primarily dwells and makes himself known. This temple is not made with human hands, but exists in corporate life of those who have been transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what church is meant to be. As one put it, and I love when he said this, that each and every time someone of the world walks into a church, they should be given a glimpse of heaven. I agree. How far have we moved away from that? Now, in each one of those, being a people, being a body, being a building, there may, in those terms, be a lack of intimacy between us and God. But God brings about a fourth identity. And that identity is found in that term, the bride of Christ. With it brings all the connotations and the elements of intimacy that you would find within a marriage relationship. In fact, Paul himself made it abundantly clear that the relationship between husband and wife, those who are in Christ, the relationship between husband and wife was meant to be a representation to all of the world of the relationship between God and his church through Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. 
I don't know about you, but when I hear about the difficulties that so many Christian marriages are having, and the number of marriage seminars that are being uh, offered, and the books that are being written, a lot of pragmatic thinking, which we're going to talk about in sessions coming up, because I believe pragmatism has had a huge effect, a negative effect upon the church in America today. And as a result, many marriages are still struggling greatly. But I believe that if a marriage of two people who are in Christ, who love the Lord, love His Word, understand theology, and they understand that the Bible displays the relationship between husband and his wife as Christ and the church, we must look at our marriage in a completely different light. Would you agree with me? It's much harder to walk away from something like that. It's much harder to rub our hands or to be defensive or selfish in a position like that. If Christ is my standard, and I as, my, as the husband need to go to the same extent for my wife that Christ went for the church, I better rethink everything. That's exactly what Paul says. In Ephesians 5, 25-33, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and having her cleansed by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. In verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In the culture of the Jewish people, there was a time of betrothal. When a man and woman were arranged and put together in marriage, from that point on, the betrothal period began. And they did not consummate that relationship until a certain period of time had been fulfilled. And that period of time was unspecified. And so what Christ has started is is that betrothal period between him and us. And like the husbandman of the Jewish culture, he leaves his bride with her family as he goes and prepares a place for her so that he and her may have a place to dwell and to start their own family. Isn't it interesting when you think about it in those terms as Christ says, I go and prepare a place for you. Isn't that interesting? He's left us until he gathers us until he comes back for us, at a time that we do not know. Many of the parables in which Jesus spoke talk about the the bridegroom and the brides, and the brides not knowing when the bridegroom would return. We don't know when that is. But Christ has gone, he is going to prepare a place for us, and we can be sure that he is going to return for us just as the husbandman returned for his bride. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. 
For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. Isn't that interesting? He's speaking of Christ. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He went on to say in Ephesians 5.24, in which we've read, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit in everything to her husband. And of course we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19.6, a song is sung on this reunion between the church and our Savior. As John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And in verse 9 of chapter 6 it reads, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These words of God are true. Colin Smith wrote in his book, Unlocking the Bible, and I love what he says here. He says, The church as we see here is often far from glorious and sometimes seems unattractive and ineffective. But the church is the bride of Christ. Christ loves her. He has given himself for her and he will bring her to his home to share his life forevermore. It is an awesome privilege to belong to the body of Christ. And lastly, the church is a family. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And this family is made through the possibility of adoption. Christ has adopted us into the family. And we have now become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now many of you may not know this, but I personally was adopted by my parents, and I'm very grateful for it. My dad often tells me that when he adopted me, it was kind of like going to an old supermarket we had here called Kmart. And he said he got me on closeout, the blue light special. I'm like, thanks, Dad. But adoption has worked in my favor also. There was a time that I came home after school one night, and I found my dad mowing the lawn, and I had a young lady with me. And as I walked up, I discovered that my dad was mowing the lawn, and he had a brown shirt on, a white hat, uh, plaid shorts, black socks, and white shoes. And I said, thank God I'm adopted. And it doesn't run in the family. But I was adopted a second time. So grateful for my parents who adopted me. But I was adopted a second time by Christ himself. As Paul wrote, he said, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, Romans 8, 12 through 17. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, he states it this way, and I love the way he writes it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The word adoption in that culture had significant meaning. It meant to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. Not only did God bring us and save us from the sin of the world and free us from the debt that that sin had created in us towards God, but he took us from the courtyards and he redeemed us from the bonds of slavery and then he took us to the courthouse and he adopted us that we no longer would just simply be a servant, but in that intimacy of love that he described for us in the bride of Christ, he now adopts us as sons and daughters. I don't know about you, but that was a place for an amen. You totally blew that. But think about it. These are the fundamental elements of the church. That we are his people. That we are his body. That we are his building. That we are his bride. That we are his family. And this is what the world is not seeing because the church is so self-consumed with itself. And we are gathering people and promising things to people that God has never promised them. And we are tickling ears rather than telling the truth. But once we know the truth, the truth is so glorious that we can't abandon it. This is what the church is. This is why I come each and every Wednesday, each and every Sunday to be with you. Because I want to be with my family. I want to be with the bride. I want to be with the body. I want to gather with the building. I want to be amongst God's people. That's why we do what we do. And the characteristic, the bond that is so lacking that the world has identified it. Remember with me, as I stated earlier, and I want to read this to you again, their first objection Groups of people, this is what their idea of the church is, groups of people who share a common physical space and have some common religious views, but are not personally connected to each other in any meaningful or life-changing way. How far from the truth can that be of what God initially attended? What is the bond that's supposed to bring us together? Love. As Christ said from the very beginning, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you so that you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what the world needs to see. And I agree with D.L. Moody when he said that if the church would simply do that, the world would be pounding down the door of the church. I'd like to wrap it up with a statement by John MacArthur. He says, The church is a family. We are called the household of God. And a household or a family is a metaphor that talks about commonality, common life, common source, common percentage, common concerns, 
common responsibility, shared life in the most intimate possible settings. That's a church. We needed to look at this before we could go any farther. We need to ask ourselves, are we doing it? And can we do it better? We need to ask ourselves what we are doing collectively, and then we have to ask ourselves what we are doing individually. To contribute or to hinder to the church. Christianity is not dying because Christ is alive. What they feel the church is on the decline, the church that Christ sees is growing each and every day around the world. And he is a way preparing a place for us. And one day he will return for us. And that's the hope, the blessed hope that the church waits within.